Welcome to the Podium and Panel Podcast. Uh, good afternoon, Your Honors. What's at the end of this case? How did this come about? Are you in the pay of the Microsoft Corporation? Start with the text of the Second Amendment. Your Honor, I, I, I think that that could be viewed as political, but that, that would be... How about the First Amendment? No, Your Honor, I don't, I don't think the First Amendment... You're out again. Still out. I think we're all in Mexico. Channel podcast, yes, 73 episodes in our first year of doing the podcast. Last week we taped two special episodes, and today is the last podcast for 2021, but we look forward to another year packed with the podcast, uh, and look forward to you, our listeners. Today we're going to cover three recent oral arguments, all medically related. The first case is Galvin versus Lakewood Nursing and Rehabilitation Center, LLC, recently argued before the Illinois Appellate Court, 3rd District. Second case is Henry versus Community Hospital, an Indiana appellate court case involving issues of privacy and a medical uh, technician that obtained records. And the third case is Mason versus St. Vincent's Home Inc., uh, dealing with the signing of an arbitration agreement for nursing homes. And we've dealt with that issue before and an interesting twist on this. And, and we'll get into that when we talk about Mason. Let's turn to Galvin. This was a procedural morass for Christmas. That is what is presented in Galvin versus Lakewood Nursing and Rehabilitation Center, LLC, recently argued before the Illinois Appellate Court, 3rd District. The following sequence of events apply to understand the statute of limitations case, or perhaps a statute of repose case. We've talked about both of those on the show before. May 2014, the disabled person fell at a hospital and she required his surgery to her hip. In June of 2014, the disabled person falls at the nursing home where she is getting rehabilitation and suffers an injury to her knee. And there's a lot of questions at the oral argument about what the original injury was too. We'll get into that. I, I think that was more a function of counsel for appellant not keeping straight which one was which right. i think yeah i think counsel that's true. for appellee had a very good handle of which injury was which yep. and when they happened and it was important for his case how they were because he was making a distinction between them and we'll talk about the import of that shortly exactly exactly and then in 2016 through a guardian the disabled person filed suit against the hospital and then in 2019, through another, through a guardian, the disabled person added the nursing the home. Same, the the same guardian, it's important. The same guardian, yeah, it's the same guardian. So uh, that is an important fact. The trial court denied the nursing home's motion to dismiss on statute of limitations grounds and certified a question under Rule 308, which we've talked about previously on the show, Rule 308. The medical malpractice statute of limitations in Illinois, 735 LCS 5-13, 212 is two years, and the statute of repose is four years, but the following applies to persons with disabilities. The person entitled to bring an action described in this section is, at the time of the cause of action accrued, under a legal disability other than being under the age of 18 years, then the period of limitations does not begin to run until the disability is removed. The nursing home asserted that once the suit was filed against the hospital, the disability was removed because the hospital and the nursing home were pled as joint tortfeasors. The plaintiff asserts that the disability was never removed 
as the person continued to be disabled and the hospital and the nursing home were not joint tortfeasors as there were separate acts of negligence, but the injuries merged, allowing jury to apportion the damages between them. One of the justices kept coming back to the four-year statute of repose and did not seem to get a satisfactory answer uh, from the advocate. Pat, tell us about oral arguments in this interesting procedural case. So thanks, Dan. And the advocates here are two lawyers, actually, that I know. Omar Fayez represents the appellant, uh, the nursing home, and Jer uh, Jerry Vinkler represents the uh, plaintiff, uh, the, the, the family of the patient. Both have long histories representing their respective sides in these kinds of cases and are very good at what they do. They are. And this is very interesting kind of case. Uh, hasn't come up. I, I'm not aware of this kind of a situation happening before. It's, it's rather unique. So I want to start with the statute. So Section A of the statute of limitations with, that applies to healing art malpractice uh, says that except as provided in Section 13-215, no action for damages for injury or death against any physician, dentist, registered nurse, or hospital duly licensed under the laws of the state, whether based upon tort or breach of contract or otherwise, arising out of patient care shall be brought more than two years after the date of which the claimant knew or through the reasonable use of diligence should have known or received notice in writing of the existence of the injury or death for which damages are brought in the action, whichever such date occurs first. And here's the, so that's the, the limitations period, which incorporates a, a uh, discovery rule. But in no event shall such action be brought more than four years after the date on which on which occurred the act or omission or occurrence alleged in such action to have been the cause of such injury or death. So that's the statute of repose. Then, as Dan said, there's this section C, which deals with a legal disability. So this person was under a legal disability at all times, uh, it seems, uh, was under a legal disability when she suffered the first injury, when she suffered the second injury, throughout the course of the litigation. It doesn't seem that the disability was ever removed, except that counsel for the appellant says, hold it. She files a lawsuit in 2016 arising out of the May 2014 injury. And at that point, she knew or should have known her, of her injury. This was an indivisible injury. That's his claim. And therefore, uh, it's that's when she knew or should have known. And the two years began to run then. And they didn't file their lawsuit for another two years, more than two years, or nearly five years after the June 2014 fall. Okay. The... And the appellant says, well, no, the, the, the injury was never removed, or strike, the disability was never removed, and these are different separate injuries. The court kind of picked up on a couple of things. One thing at the very end, the, the court picked up, says, well, how is this an indivisible injury? You know, you're going to have medical bills separate from both, and yes, ultimately the permanency merges uh, going into the long term, but you've got medical bills and pain and suffering related to the, the hip surgery, and you've got medical bills and pain and suffering related to the knee surgery. And yes, ultimately they both combined to prevent the woman from able to be, ever being able to go back home. And yes, that's a problem, but that's for a jury that, you know, essentially the plaintiff's argument is that's for the jury to sort out. Um, so that's one of the things. The interesting procedural question here is it's a 308 certification. We don't know what the question was, but it seemed quite clear that it only dealt with the statute of limitations. And one of the justices kept saying, he said to both sides, what about statute of repose? It says in no event. The section C right. only deals with the limitations period. It doesn't deal with the repose period. And the repose period 
is a period after which the party is essentially incapable, unable to bring the claim. And there is no discovery rule in a repose period. I mean, there can be, I suppose, but that's typically not how they work. Typically, they are. That's why it says in no event, in no event, in no event. Yep. Yeah, it's, it's very clear language that that's it. So four years from June of 2018, sometime in June of 2018, I'm sorry, so four years after June of 2014, sometime in June of 2018 is the end. And because they didn't file suit until uh, 2019, it's too late. You're out of the box on statute of repose. Counsel for the appellee tried to argue uh, something that I didn't quite follow what his argument was to get around the statute of repose. He tried to argue that, in fact, it's not four years, it's five years in this circumstance. Right. I, I, I did not understand what he was getting at. Maybe he's right. I don't know. It, it didn't make sense to me. It's, it's not uh, within the reading of the statutes, the I didn't references see it you've made today. I don't see it. but I didn't see it. So maybe we're missing something. That's always possible. The other thing that is important is can they even get to the statute of repose if it wasn't presented on the 308 question, which means was it even raised below by the appellant? And if it wasn't, is it waivable? Right. And I don't know that question either. If a statute of repose is a or failure to raise it is a waivable defense. And counsel for appellant didn't quite didn't seem to quite pick up on what the justice was getting at. It's like, oh, no, you've got another defense over here that I'm identifying. Tell right. me about this one. And he kept coming back to the statute, his argument. And it's it's one of those situations where just as it's important to listen to the answers that a witness gives at a de deposition, it's important to listen to the questions that the appellant or that the justices ask because they're trying sometimes and they'll say it sometimes. I'm trying to help you here. Right. Uh, I'm trying to. I'm arguing with one of my friends over here on the bench and telling them why you're right. If you just give me the answer that I need, I can help you back in conference. Uh, they don't some they don't say it quite that clearly sometimes, but sometimes that's clear what they're actually getting at. Uh, this is a, a, a I the first time I listened to it, I thought the appellant was all wet. The second time I listened to it, I thought the appellee was all wet. <laughs> so I I've kind of changed my mind as I've listened to this one. Trying to figure out what it what's going on here, and I listened to him about a month apart because this argument was back in November, right. and so I had to get ready for the show and my post on it. I had to kind of refresh my recollection on it, and I had a completely different take on it having listened to it the second time. Dan, uh, what are your thoughts? No, I think it's a I think this is a very interesting question, and and as you note, it'd be helpful to know what the three hundred eight certified question was actually because. The, if a statute of repose wasn't raised, you raise interesting issues. Is it waivable? So I, I don't I, know. I think this uh, that this court's going to have a, 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 a big job on its hands to sort this out and figure out what in the hell they do with this case. I, I don't know what they do with this case. I, I, they may be constrained procedurally. Uh, the defendant at this point may be constrained procedurally as to what they can do. <laughs> uh, I, I, I don't know what to make out of this, situ this particular situation. So... So with that, uh, we'll take our first break and come back and talk about Henry versus Community Hospital. Segment two of episode 73 of the Pony Panel podcast for Henry versus Community, Co Community Hospital, easy for me to say, <laughs> which is take two 
uh, before the Indiana Appellate Court, and it's an important medical privacy case. The Indiana Appellate Court actually, so does the Supreme Court. They do this very helpful thing where they summarize the cases for you. So at least you get the idea of what the court has to say. I wish um, we did it in Illinois. I, I love well, these summaries. There are too many of them in, in, in Illinois compared I know. to Indiana. That's the I reason know. why I think it doesn't happen. I think the vast majority of cases in Indiana don't get argued, and there are fewer cases to begin with than there are in Illinois. Yes. Um, so Amanda Henry injured the tip of her ring finger and sought treatment of community hospitals. Munster, says the court. While there, x-ray images were taken of her finger, which had been fractured, and she was advised to take a few days off work at her job as a, as a dog groomer. After Amanda returned to work, her employer showed her and a co-worker x-rays, x-ray images of Amanda's finger. Amanda's employer's husband was a radiological technician at Community Hospital Munster, and though not involved in Amanda's care, had assessed the images and shared them with his wife, Amanda's employer. Amanda filed a complaint against Community Healthcare System, Community Healthcare System, Community Hospital, alleging general negligence. We reversed the trial court's dismissal of the complaint under Trial Rule 12 and remanded the matter for further proceedings. The appeal rises from the trial court's order after remand, granting summary judgment in favor of Community Healthcare System, Community Hospital. The argument before the court the second time focused on whether Indiana has, oh, this is me talking now, not the court, focused on whether Indiana has or should have causes of action for public disclosure of public facts, or private facts rather, invasion on seclusion, and whether the plaintiff has any damages at all, given that she disclosed the injury to her employer, though not the specifics that the x-ray tech husband disclosed. The issue of medical privacy is a common one addressed in a variety of dimensions in recent months. We talked about it in the Dinnerstein case. We've talked about it in, in a number of cases. Uh, Dan, uh, why don't you tell us about the oral argument? Sure. Thanks. Thanks, Pat. And we've talked about privacy in various contexts and kind of the, you know, issues of privacy. We, we talked about the DuPage case with the uh, state's attorney releasing medical records. Um, in this case, regardless of how the Indiana court comes out, I don't know about you, Pat, but I was very troubled by it that uh, somebody's snooping around and, and looking, whether it's for benefit or not, uh, that, that he's going, uh, you know, about the world. Uh, the court didn't seem very, very concerned about it, uh, the justices. But in any event, I, I recently posted on LinkedIn about a book, Why Privacy Matters by Neil Richards. And it deals with the importance of privacy in a world where we've traded convenience and access for our important privacy. And, and this continues to be an issue that will not be resolved by Pat and I or anybody else. A um, couple of things here. One, I want to start with the negligent retention uh claim because that took up some time uh this employee this uh, radial technician uh he had uh, had 48 i think uh instances of discipline uh for parking tickets he must be parking in a spot that's not reserved for employees and he's late to work often and uh, none of it has to do with quality of care <laughs> no and, and and i i think you know i think that's an easy thing for these justices to knock out because uh, the appellant was arguing that those uh, indicated that this guy was a discipline problem, and the justices were very skeptical. They're like, really, like parking tickets, and these are parking tickets, right? Well, his argument was it was negligent retention because he wouldn't have been there at all to get it if you right. fired him like you should have. But again, I mean, really, parking yeah. tickets and being late to work? I mean, uh, maybe. And he had one 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 instance of of taking an X ray of the wrong patient. Person. Yeah, but. but well, out of better than some doctors that have chopped off the wrong limbs. So yeah, 
Yeah, my dad uh, had dental surgery years ago, and and the guy took did a root canal on the wrong tooth. Um, not not a good thing. My no. dad didn't do anything because my dad's not you know not not, not his style. So, as Pat mentioned in this case, the question here is whether or not Indiana should recognize the uh, public disclosure of private facts. And uh, Easterbrook would have been horrified by this oral argument because they frequently refer to PDPF. And at first I had to, with well, the first I time I used PDPF, I, I didn't know I didn't what think he was about talking it. about. I'm like, what? what is this? I, don't, I have no idea what you're talking about. But uh, um, and, and the question here is, is uh, Indiana has, uh, uh, in these cases where there's not physical injury, they, they've come up with what's known as the uh, modified impact, impact rule. Right. Modified impact is, is basically um, when a plaintiff sustains a direct impact by the negligence of another and by virtue of that direct involvement sustains an emotional trauma, which is serious in nature and of the kind and ex extent normally ex expected to occur in a reasonable person, a plaintiff is entitled to maintain an action to recover for that emotional trauma without regard to whether the emotional trauma arises out of or accompanies any physical injury to the plaintiff. Uh, but that's been changed, um, and it does require some physical impact. In the case here, uh, what the justices really struggled with in the oral argument uh, was, as Pat mentioned, uh, this employee did, in fact, disclose to her employer uh, that she had had this injury and that she would be out for several days. And so I think the justices were really asking, what's the real physical impact here? You, you pretty much in her deposition and then discovery uh, conceded that there's no actual physical impact. Uh, to well, they her. were concerned whether there were damages at all. Right. And that's that, that there right. were emotional or otherwise. You disclosed that this finger had been fractured and right. so did the x-ray tech to his wife. I mean, right. yes, he gave her some more details that she was lucky and so forth. But right. what was the difference? Right. And, uh, and so um, the, the, there was also talk. So, so you either have to have modified impact in these cases or you have to have a uh, bystander. And you can't be a bystander to your own thing. The bystander rule, as we've talked about on other cases in Illinois and Indiana, I believe, means that you're, uh, you see something tragic or you come across a family member or just because of the uh, nexus to, to an actual uh, injury. And as Pat mentioned, the, the big, the big, real um, skepticism, I think I would say, by the justices was, what, what's the harm here, right? Yeah, and and the appellant kept coming back to, look, the disclosure, the invasion itself, is what is in fact the uh, injury here, and, and the impact that that privacy, uh, like like some other uh, instances, is um, it, it's that. Uh, intrusion into our private space and, and doing these things. Uh, the justices also, I think, had some skepticism and asked, you know, has the has the radial uh, technician been sued? And that had not been done yet. And so, again, there may be an action against him for some kind of, you know, unwarranted investigation of the of the records. Uh, but uh, not sure what the what the purpose of that would be he's not gonna have no. any any money or insurance to cover and again what's the what's the damages what's the even if you get it right so right um um so um the the unrebuttal what what the appellant was trying to argue is that there's this dichotomy in indiana uh for intentional torts 
uh, such as the case of Walgreens, where the people were intentionally going after a patient and made disclosures. Uh, a lot of talk was about that. Um, you, you don't need to show this physical impact, right? It's just a, a per se. And so there's this dichotomy. Um, I think one of, one, of, one of the challenges, Pat, for uh, the appellant here, and, and they made it very clear, there's at least two, two of the cases that are on point, including Walgreens, uh, the decisions were written by the panel that was uh, discussing this case. And so um, a, a big, tall hurdle to get over. Uh, Pat had also mentioned that this is the second time that this case has been before the appellate court. The first time it was on HIPAA. And HIPAA, as we've talked about previously on the show, does not afford a private right of action for individuals. Uh, but again, this is the, the, the appellant here, uh, who sounds like he's been on this mission for decades, 15 years, he said, or something, yeah. of trying to change the Indiana law and has had very little success, it sounds like, uh, from, from what I heard from this opinion and from a couple other cases we've talked about before, and trying to get the, the uh, uh, public disclosure, private facts uh, recognized by, by the... Uh, well, it seemed his first, his first tact was to have it covered under the Medical Malpractice Act, which it right. turned out it wasn't. Right. And then he tried... Then, then they... The defendants and he have kind of been playing this dance for a decade and a half as right. he continues to bring these claims and trying to find ways to to state a cause. So, I mean, bully for him. He's trying to he's he's carved himself out of niche. Yeah. The problem here is he's got a bad plaintiff. He's got bad facts from the plaintiff that she told the employer, and that's it, it's it's almost it's a bad vehicle. It's a it's, bad set of facts for him. It's it's a bad it's set of facts. But as I mentioned at the top, Pat, uh, the, the, this situation troubles me because again, I don't I don't want some some colleague or, or some spouse or a friend of of somebody if I if I go to the the doctor. And it reminds me of you know, one time uh, when I was still uh, using the Northwestern Medical System. Uh, I was talking to another lawyer. And he said that he was in the uh, in the room. You know, they have those little uh, computers and stuff. And the doctor didn't log out, and he looked up one of his colleagues. And again, that's just offensive to me that you, again, that somebody would go and and disclose this. Um, they did talk about, you know, what if this were HIV or some other, you know, STD or something. I mean, it, I could see if 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 the facts were like that, that this would be a much better case. And the court, yeah, one of the justices said it over and over again. This is not rape. This is not right. HIV. Right. This is a broken finger. What's the big deal? Right. Yeah. But it, but it, 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 give me something better. But it, but it's just again, it's 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 uh, it, this has a stench to it that you know. But but yeah, this is not. I I don't think this is a vehicle for the Indiana court uh, to come up with this if they were going to do it. But I, I do think, again, it's troublesome because again. How often is this guy looking at records to disclose to his wife or other people? You know, it's and what the hell is he doing? You know, why should he have access to those records right. if he's not treating? He wasn't, him, so. he wasn't involved in her care. He just looked it up. So. so, all right. With that, we'll take our next break and come back with segment three and discuss Mason versus St. Vincent's home. Three of episode 73 of the Podium and Panel podcast. We're going to address the case Mason. We're having a little bit of uh, squad cast difficulties for some reason today. Yes, we are. In this case, the question is, what is required to show that the arbitration clause was a condition precedent to admission of the patient without, without the execution of which the patient would have been discharged? Those are among the questions the Illinois Appellate Court, 4th District, will address when it decides Mason versus St. Vincent's home 
ink that was recently argued. The patient's son, who was her health care power of attorney, executed a series of documents to admit his mother to the defendant's nursing home. The patient died and sued the home for survival and wrongful death claims. The defendant successfully moved to compel arbitration of the survival claim, and the plaintiff appealed. On appeal, the plaintiff contended that because of a provision of the contract that terminated the contract upon the death of the patient, the arbitration clause did not survive as there was no clause in the contract perpetuating the arbitration clause. The defendant responded that arbitration does survive because the contract was not revoked and that if there's an ambiguity in whether the claim is still arbitrable under the Federal Arbitration Act and the Uniform Arbitration Act, ambiguity in this context is to be construed in favor of arbitration. Conditional admission is important in this case because the healthcare power of attorney is limited. And if the arbitration clause is not a requirement, then there was no authority for the HPOA to enter into the agreement. There was unclear deposition testimony from the defendant representative, but a list of required docu documents did include the arbitration agreement. This case falls on a series of these kinds of cases, including Kazard versus Heather Healthcare Center, LLC, 2021 ILAP 1st, 201193U, and Taylor versus UDI number four, LLC, 2021 ILAP 4th, 210057U, where the first and fourth districts seem to reach opposite conclusions. Pat has posted in the comments, and this case was argued by M Michael Rathsack and Melinda Colross, two outstanding appellate advocates, and we've had uh, cases before with Michael Rathsack for sure that we've talked about on the show. Pat, tell us about oral argument in this case. Thanks, Dan. And we've had at least one with uh, with Melinda too. That's um, right. That's right. So the this is a it, this is an interesting and developing issue. So several years ago, in a case called SCR Odin, the Illinois Supreme Court held that arbitration agreements in nursing home contracts were enforceable. And so now, what's become the fight is the uh, the extent of those arbitration clauses and when they have to be executed and who can execute them and all, and all the rest that has been the follow on. And so there's been this development recently about the, uh, in the Kaiser case, it was, well, in both Kaiser and the Taylor case, it was a question of the ability of the patient to understand what was going on. That wasn't really the issue here. The issue here was, so the agreement provided that it terminated upon the death of the patient. Patient dies. Agreement terminates. Does that also terminate the arbitration clause because there wasn't a survivability clause, as you oftentimes have? Counsel for the appellee said, well, sure, because you're right. The It wasn't a revocation upon death. It was a termination upon death. It made this distinction between a revocation and a termination. Not so sure. Uh, I'm not so sure if that distinction works, but that's you go with what you got. Uh, and the other there, there's this there also was, you know, how clear does clear have to be in order for the uh, the condition of the arbitration clause to be uh, necessary for the person to remain in the hospital or remain in the facility and counsel for the appellee or appellant rather on rebuttal, I thought did a very nice job of saying, 
Yes, you've listed all these documents, but what it doesn't say is that he couldn't just cross one out or not sign that one or just ixnay the arbitration clause inside of it and sign the rest of the agreement. It doesn't say that you have to sign it. You know That particular clause has to be agreed to in order for the patient to remain at the facility. Okay. I, I'm not so, I mean, I'm not sure what the court's going to do with that. Uh, if it says a list of the things that have to be, have to be signed, it doesn't say you have to sign some of them, but not all of them or this kind right. of thing. So I'm not right. sure, but it's, it is creative. Uh, I'll, I'll give him, I'll give him that. It's creative. Also, she uh, wasn't kicked out. So yeah, if it was a condition and it wasn't fulfilled, but it was fulfilled. It... I mean, the question was whether it was I mean, he did right. sign the agreement. The question is, was it a condition proceeding? If he hadn't, would she have been kicked out? And that's the real question. Right. Right. In order for it to be, it had because, and the reason is, is because the healthcare power of attorney only has a limited scope. And so if it didn't relate to uh, healthcare, that is getting her in a nursing home, then the arbitration clause doesn't, he doesn't have the authority to right. execute that arbitration clause. The, the uh, example that Rassak gave was, well, he couldn't go buy a condo on her behalf either. Under the under the healthcare power of attorney, because the condo doesn't have anything to do with her healthcare, um, so that's the that's the hook. Is it has that's how it gets related. He wasn't her general guardian; he was only her healthcare power of attorney. So only things dealing with his mother health, his mother's healthcare, would apply or would fall within the scope of his authority. The other thing that was interesting was the distinction between the survival claims and the wrongful death claims. So yep. the survival claims belong to the estate of the deceased, whereas the wrongful death claims belong to the beneficiaries. So there was there will be a bifurcation between the litigation of those. That is that they will litigate the survival claims. Those are the pain and suffering and medical bills incurred during the deceased's lifetime prior to her death. And then the grief and loss and all the suffering, all that will be uh, will get tried in a civil court with regards to those to the beneficiaries of her estate, the son, and perhaps there's other beneficiaries who knows. Uh, so that's interesting that there's this bifurcation uh, between these two. Um, it, it's it, as I said, this is a part of an ongoing theme of cases involving arbitration. We've seen it in baseball. Uh, you know, we've seen it yep. uh, in a couple different baseball cases. We've seen that we've seen this. So there's a whole range of these arbitration cases um, that uh, are important to uh, to keep in mind. Uh, Dan, anything else we need to add to to our discussion of this case? I don't think so. I think uh, I'd mentioned, I think that my dad was moving into independent living and as part of that process, they made clear that the arbitration was optional and, and okay. we, did not, we did not sign it. So I bet not. <laughs> yeah. So, but uh, I think maybe they're changing because of all these cases that constantly probably too costly to keep fighting about, you know, arbitration clauses signed. Exactly. So that brings us with our prediction sure to go wrong. So why don't we cover our record? Or you want to do the do the three for this week first? We cover our record first and then Okay. So our record now is Dan is 93, 15, and 7, and I am 92, 16, and 7. Uh the first one we got, we got several right this week. One, two, you got four right All this right. week. Yes, good good week this week. Four and oh. Yep. Uh the first one is that from the 10th Circuit, Goodwill versus Philadelphia, covered on episode 66. This deals with uh, COVID-19 um, coverage, and the 10th Circuit joined, make sure I get this right, 6th, 7th, 8th, 9th, and 11th yep. in agreeing with uh, 
the insurers, the second district remains outstanding uh, that we yep. talked about. Uh, um, was still waiting. Six, seven, What's eight, nine, 10, 11. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, it's like a flush. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Dan, uh, anything to add of anything interesting about this uh, case, Goodwill versus Philadelphia? No, this was the case. The, the only thing I'll, I'll remind listeners is this was the case where the Goodwill CEO was a lawyer and argued the case. And again, it uh, failed to mention any evidence of actual physical presence on the premises and on their on their furniture thing. So, yeah, which brings us to Lovelace versus Gibson, which is very much like uh, Jones versus Kuchel. And we've discussed these cases on episodes 66 and 68. Lovelace is the case from Quincy with the alleged uh, uh, or, uh, malicious prosecution. And this was a qualified immunity case where the court held that there was not there was not jurisdiction because there was a dispute as to fact, um, just like the court held in Jones versus Kuschel. The other thing that was interesting, if you uh, there was the post trial or the post argument briefing on the issue, right. where the parties were supposed to point the court where there was this discussion of qualified immunity that even made it a collateral order to the extent that it even there was even a, uh, not a dispute. And apparently the parties had submitted submissions and the court was like, we can't find what they're talking about. It's not there. Uh, and so, but then they went on to analyze it anyway, assuming that even if it was, there still was a dispute as to fact. Still so a dispute, yep. a, another way to get out of a judging um, <laughs> cases in the Seventh Circuit for lack of jurisdiction. Dan, anything to add on Lovelace versus Gibson? No, I don't think so. It brings okay. us to it, the prior versus CTA, which was the case with the uh, person that uh, fell onto the train tracks and, and the speed and all that. It was discussed on episode 69, so recently. And they the court held that a moving train was an op open and obvious condition. They also uh, referred to the fact that this person was behind an elevator or some other thing, so the, the conductor may not have been able to see appropriately anyway. Which got them, I think, was their way to not have to deal with the discovered trespasser doctrine right. which came up in Kiros versus CTA that was like their backhanded way to distinguish with the Kiros case that they had been at, that the appellant ha had asked for them to wait to decide on um and I think they're trying to make this distinction that the video puts the while you could see other people on the platform you couldn't see the deceased and so therefore he wasn't discovered by the train operator prior to the uh to the incident uh it's important, though, that they deal with they deal with the open and obvious condition of the train. They walk through the four factors. Um, they do what the Kiros court did not, uh, perhaps indicating that uh, there's this distinction between when someone's a discovered trespasser and when there isn't an application of the of the duty factors. I'm not so sure about that, but yeah. not only that. They also built on the Anderson case, which was a case against the CTA where a person on a, a platform in Evanston had been wandering around for about 45 minutes and then fell onto the tracks and hit the third rail. So it wasn't a moving train situation, but they make it clear that the person on the platform is only owed an ordinary duty of care, not a heightened duty of care had they made it onto the conveyance, which is important because these cases where the person is not on the conveyance are can be used by premises owners because only an ordinary duty of care is applicable to the extent a duty was owed at all. Which brings us to Cothrone versus White Castle that we covered on episode 55. Dan, do you want to tell us about uh, 
about this case and how it dovetails with another one of ours, Watson versus Legacy? Sure. We got this one right. We got Watson wrong. We got this one right because we told we said what they would do. And right. what did they do with this one, Dan? They they followed Watson, right? They punted to or not punted, but they followed uh, Watson. Questions well, no, they didn't, they didn't follow. They, they 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 certified the question. They certified the question, right? Right. They. So. I mean, I don't think they made a decision one way or the other. Right. Did they? Right. Yeah. No. Okay. Uh, no. That, that's right. And they certify the question, do Section 15B and 15D claims accrue each time a private entity scans a person's biometric identifier and each time a private entity transmits such a scan to a third party, respectively, or only upon the first scan and first transmission? And they wrote, uh, just a few days ago, the First District of the Illinois Appellate Court decided Watson versus Legacy Healthcare Financial Services. There, the court held that a Section 15B claim accrues with each and every capture and use of a plaintiff's fingerprint or hand scan. Generally speaking, certification to a state Supreme Court is not appropriate when the state's intermediate appellate courts have addressed the question and agree on the answer. They cite to Liberty Mutual Fire versus statewide insurance. The recent decision of Watson does not weigh against certification. It is the only appellate decision to address the repeated accrual of claims under the Act, and it did not address Section 15D, which we consider along Section 15B here. Furthermore, as we explained, the issue of claim accrual under the Act is a close recurring and highly disputed question of great legal and practical consequence that requires authoritative guidance from the Illinois Supreme Court. And so hopefully the Supreme Court will answer that question. And as Pat and I have talked about, this is an important question because if it accrues each and every time, and even though uh, Watson said it may issue damages, the significant exposure to employers and others that violate uh, BIPA can in fact lead to ruinous damages. And so uh, more to come on that. We'll follow when, uh, when the Supreme Court answers this question. I have every expectation that they will take this case. I think so. They've got to. They've got to take it's, the case. It's, Otherwise, they're going to just perpetuate a mess on, on their hands. Exactly. So let's do our predictions sure to go wrong for this week. Uh, Galvin versus Lakewood. <laughs> 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 if if they're allowed to answer a question they're not asked, I think they'll answer that question, but I don't think they can do that. I don't think so either. So I think they're going to affirm, and I think they're going to make some comments about, uh, excuse me, uh, we think the statute of repose applies here. And uh, go argue that, Mr. Uh, appellant, Mr. Defendant. I think that's right. I think, I think, it, gets right. I think it gets affirmed, but we'll see. Yep. Um, Henry versus Community Hospital, affirmed. affirmed. Yeah. They're not, they're not, not buying, not, they're not, buying in this case. not in this, not with these facts, not with these absence of damages, I don't think. And then Mason versus St. Vincent, I think this gets affirmed too. I think so too. Yeah, I think these are all affirmed, which brings us to the uh, the rule of the week. And uh, courtesy again of Corey Webster, uh, Dan, why don't you tell us about uh, about this this circumstance? Sure, we've, we've talked about this before. Uh, Pat, about uh, citing some published decisions in Illinois, there's been uh, some change. But uh, Corey, last week, he posted uh, about the Ninth Circuit and uh, suggestion that you not cite unpublished decisions. There was a panel a few years ago uh, that was very clear uh, of what they had to say about citing unpublished opinions. And I think, Pat, you're going to play that clip. Yeah, let me let me do that here real quick. This queued up here. 
Despite an unbroken line of 10 decisions from this court and four district court judges below, the plaintiffs argue for a new and unprecedented duty. There are 10 decisions since Wilson's published decision. Including Wilson, starting with Wong v. published or published decisions. There are three published decisions. Right, exactly. You know, we've been having this problem all week, and I've noticed that the briefs have started to do this. We really mean it when we say we're really not interested in the unpublished opinions. Okay. <laughs> Very clear. <laughs> yeah, she she's she's like, yeah, we're done with this. We've had enough of this this week. We don't care about the unpublished decisions. Um, we're not having that. Um, I will say you mentioned the change to Illinois law. You, you think a rule that's been around for about a year, there wouldn't be something new I would have figured out about it. And I, I went to go cite a case this week, and I realized there was a, a clause of the rule that I missed. Really? If you cite a case for persuasive authority, that's an opinion issued after January 1, 2021, then you have to attach it. You have to attach the order to your brief. Why? That's what the rule says. You have to attach it. So I I, re I had not realized that. Uh, and so I when I went back and looked at the rule, because I, I haven't cited many of these, I think it's maybe only the second time I've done it, because... I mean, these cases just came down. So I went back, I looked at the rule, I cited it, and I read the rule again. And lo and behold, there it is. If you cite such a rule, you got to attach it to your brief. So I attach it to the brief. Uh, I, I, I missed that one. So uh, just a little tip. Attach, if you're going to do it in Illinois, you're allowed to for orders after entered after January 1, 2021, attach the brief or attach the order. So uh, with that, Dan, it's been a great year. Uh, it is. This is our, our last show for the year, and we'll be back next Sunday, maybe. We'll see what, what comes up left. We've got some arguments that we've been put on ice that we can, uh, we'll have a show next week. Uh, so until then, everybody have a great, uh, a great new year. I'm Dan Cotter, and on behalf of my co-host, Pat Eckler, we thank you for listening and look forward to having you join us again. Please follow us on LinkedIn and read our columns in the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin. Please join us again at the podium and panel. Each episode on the podium and panel podcast, we will cover several oral arguments and decisions in civil matters at the Illinois Appellate Court and Illinois Supreme Court with the occasional coverage of SCOTUS and other appellate courts. The purpose of the podcast is to inform of developments that may affect business and are not to be considered legal advice. They do not create a lawyer-client relationship. Information on previous case results do not guarantee a similar future result. The opinions are their own and do not reflect those of the firms for which they work or their clients.